you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who live in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. All right, church, why don't we pray together? Gracious God, we thank you. You speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you that you pour out your spirit upon us, and we pray that you would now, as we sit in this passage in Joshua chapter 9, Lord, speak clearly to us, speak words of comfort, speak words of challenge, change our lives, in light of what we read and make us more like Jesus, we pray in your strong name. Amen. All right, City on a Hill, great to be with you. I'm Ben, I'm here, I'm on staff at City on a Hill. I'm preparing to plant our newest church, our next church in Ballarat. Very exciting. Lots of you have been asking how it's going. Thank you for your interest and concern. We moved up there. We're in an exciting phase of growing the launch team. We've started our first gospel community gathering with some wonderful people. It's been a great encouragement from me. We are praying our socks off that God would grow this church. 
and I would love your partnership in those prayers as well. Pray that God would draw people to his church and grow City on a Hill Ballarat for the sake of that uh, city. And if you are considering a tree change, uh, look no further than Victoria's third biggest city with this wonderful mix of regional living with big skies and lots of space, but still kind of city chic and all the, the cafes that you need to keep those creature comforts going. And, and did I mention very affordable housing in Ballarat as well? Uh, it is the place to be. So if you are thinking about a move from Melbourne, let's chat. Let's, let's have a coffee. That's all. No commitments. Let's just, let's meet. I'd love to chat. Uh, thank you for your partnership. We're going to open the Bible together. We're going to look at the ninth chapter in our series in Joshua. How good has this series been? God is good. We're seeing it all the way through. And we're in chapter nine today. We've got three points. First half is a lesson from the Israelites. Second half, a lesson from the Gibeonites. Third half, uh, we're going to look at Jesus. So open up your Bibles with us. Here's our, our first point. A covenant with no counsel is not clever. Uh, the idea of a covenant is this really vivid thread that pulls through the whole chapter, really actually the whole Bible. And so it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Essentially, a covenant is a contract between two or more parties. You do this, we'll do that. If, if one of us breaks it, there are consequences. But the covenant that God makes uh, with Israel is more relational. Uh, marriage is a better picture for what that covenant is like. It's a, a public ceremony with these solemn binding promises, but it's in the context of a, a deep and intimate relationship. Now, just for kicks, here's a picture of my marriage to Suja. She's the beautiful bride in white. I'm the guy that looks 15 on her arm. I don't look at these photos often, to be honest, they make me cringe. If I could go back and change just one thing from the whole span of human history, it would be to get a haircut on my wedding day. I don't like looking at this, but doesn't Suja look beautiful? That's kind of the main thing, right? Uh, anyway, God's covenant with Israel is like a marriage. Uh, there are promises from God to give the nation this land to, to live in and prosper peacefully. And Israel, for their part, will keep the law that God has given them to reflect out to the watching world what God is like. That's the deal. And it goes back a generation to Moses. And in fact, at the end of chapter 8, just before our chapter today, they have renewed their vows. Joshua's gathered the whole nation. They've stood together. They've recommitted to God. They've reread his law. So it's fresh in their minds and their hearts. And it all makes the, the mistakes in our chapter so much more disappointing. So open your Bibles with me, please. Go online, get a, get a paper copy. We're in chapter 9, verse 3. We meet the Gibeonites. Uh, this is a tribe from a city not far from Ai and Jericho, cities that we've seen already in the story. And so they know what happens when people stand against God's plans. The, the rubble of Jericho is there to tell the tale. So the Gibeonites don't want to fight. Uh, they they want to play dirty. Literally, right? They, they get out their old saddest sacks and their patched up wineskins. They kind of bash up their Birkenstocks and they let their food go moldy and, and dry. And I don't know, maybe they rough up their hair and they put some makeup on and they work up a sweat. And then they come to Joshua's camp. And here's what they say. Look with me at verse 6. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, 
We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. What do they want? A covenant. Uh, When do they want it? Now, yes, love it. Interaction. These crafty Gibeonites have done their research, right? Their legal eagles have gone back through the law of Moses, and they find a Hail Mary play that's just crazy enough that it might just work. They have stumbled upon Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is a, a section of the law on who Israel can and can't make covenants or peace treaties with. Check this out. Here's verse 10. God says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And then later, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. So cities not in the land of Canaan, very far away. Yes, sure, go for it. Be friends. Make peace with them. But the cities of this land that you are entering, the promised land, devote them and their tribes to complete destruction. So if you're a Gibeonite and you know this law and you've seen what's happened in Jericho, you're going to do whatever it takes to save your skin, aren't you? Well, Joshua and his crew see these guys shuffle in, but they're not idiots, right? They ask them, how, how do we know you're not just from down the road? How do, you know, how do we know you're not living among us? And, and here's where we get a little nod, just one, that all is not well in verse 7. But the man of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? It's a little wink from the narrator. They do live among them. They're Hivites. Gibeon's their city. Hivites is their tribe. And God said to devote them to complete destruction. Don't make a covenant with them. But they're acting for their very lives. No, 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 they say. Uh, We're your servants. We come from very, 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 very far away. And why did they come? Have a look with me at verse 9. They said to him, Joshua, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. They don't know God deeply yet, but they know enough. They know his track record. And you know, sometimes that's all we need. Just a little grain of truth about God is enough to draw us to himself. So they ask again, verse 11, come now, make a covenant with us. Make peace with us. They dig out their fake evidence. They show off their their smelly sandals and the the dry and crumbly bread. And, And then comes verses 14 and 15. These are the key verses in this chapter that help us make sense of this story. Let's read them. So the man of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. 
It's the, the heart of this story. The men of Israel sit down and eat this moldy bread with the Gimeonites, and then they make the peace treaty. They make a covenant with them. And what do they not do? They don't ask counsel from God. The issue is not the covenant itself, right? Deuteronomy has made provision for that. It's not even that they've been tricked, right? It's kind of not really on them. The problem is they didn't consult God. And we're not talking about choosing what you have for breakfast or what color socks you're going to wear. This is the biggest decision you can make in the culture of the day, the, the biggest binding agreement you can make with anyone else. And they don't ask God. It's not just an oversight. It's the sin of self-reliance and God-forgetfulness. And it's crazy, isn't it? Because Joshua has been talking to God the whole way through the story. They've got this open dialogue. And he's gathered the nation just one chapter before to refresh themselves on the relationship they have with God. And they've forgotten all about it just one chapter later. I I don't know. Maybe they're believing their own hype, right? They're hearing the Gibeonites tell them the stories of what God has done. And they're thinking, we did that. How good are we? We we don't need to consult with God and, and have him micromanage us. Oh, Israel. Making a covenant without counsel from God is not clever. We see this over and over in the Old Testament. They are so quick to forget God and his promises and his provision and his track record in saving them and their commitment to his law to order their lives. They turn inwards and they they try and figure things out on their own and And gosh, I say all that, and I could just as well be talking about us, couldn't I? Am I really much more spiritually evolved than these guys are? Time for an honest self-assessment of ourselves, City on a Hill. When it comes to making big life decisions, where does God feature in our decision-making process? Look, I know some of us. We're flat out in prayer before the Lord, seeking his will for our lives. And that is you, that is commendable. And and we need your support. We need you on our prayer team, if you're not already on it, to teach and and model that life of dependence on God. But for most of us, for many of us, if we're honest, God's a bit of an afterthought, isn't he? Take the, the decision we might have to make on where we study, right? Do I move overseas? Do I stay at home? Do I move interstate? What uni do I go to? So we, we check the uni rankings and we go through it meticulously and we read all the course reviews and, and we talk to people that have studied there and we find out what their experience is like and we, we Google where we're going to live and, and what the nightlife is like. And, and then just before we lock it in, we, we think, oh, wait, I, I should pray. And so we pray, God, please bless the decision I'm making. And we get on with it. If we're honest, right, that's how it works, doesn't it? What about perhaps if we're thinking about a a career opportunity and we plot out the pathway if I apply for this job and get it and that will fill out my CV and then I can get promoted in that company and hop over to this one and by then I'll be earning more money so we can move to that suburb and that'll be great for the kids that we don't yet have but it will be great for schooling when they come and, and we've mapped it all out before we stop 
and ask God what he thinks. All the, the research and the planning and the dreaming is all good, but it's back to front if we don't stop and ask God first and let him fill our minds with wisdom as we make these decisions. Have we checked if we move to study or work in that location? Is there a church there that I can plug into? What will that city's culture or that company culture do for my faith? Will it, will it help me flourish or will it hinder me? Is there a church where I can serve and, and help others and spur them on to love and good deeds with our eyes fixed on the, the day of the Lord? Are we even asking those questions? See, Donnie Hill, the Bible warns us not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Here's James 4. James, the, the brother of Jesus, says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Let's be honest. We are in Melbourne, right? The air we breathe is self-sufficiency, self-reliance, DIY. You do you. Follow your heart. Guys got us thinking about that over the last few weeks. Individual sovereignty is king, isn't it? And that means that the, the climate is ripe for growing self-reliance in our hearts. And God says it's arrogant. So what are the big decisions looming for you? Is it career or, or study options or a relationship or, or a new home? What are they? Uh, let me put this challenge to you with them. Seek God's counsel first. Seek his counsel first. That means to stop and pray. God, what is your will for me? And we know from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, that God's will is always to sanctify me, to grow me, to be more like Jesus. So Lord, help me have wisdom with the decision facing me to, to choose the option that fosters that sanctification in my life. Help me to know what's going to serve your purpose for my life. And that does two things, right? In the short term, it does actually invite God into the decision-making process. It presumes that he is alive and active and, and cares about us. And he does. He wants to see our lives take certain directions so we might flourish and become more like Jesus. That's the short term. And then the long term, it grows our faith. It teaches our hearts to depend not on me, but on God. I loved hearing from Stefan with the interview for the internship. It's just a step of faith. And that, that journey might just start with one prayer. That the Lord would be at work in our lives. It's, it's like exercise, right? We don't see the impact of uh, one gym session. But after one month or six months or one year, there we see the difference, right? So it is with faith. And then we don't do nothing when we've sought God's counsel, we, we do the research and the planning and the dreaming. We ask for the wisdom of others. We look in our lives for 
God's prompting and direction, an open door here or a closed door there. And look, in all of it, let's do it with our Bibles open. God's Word guides us. The folly of Israel's leaders was that they had forgotten the very covenant commitments they just read through one chapter earlier. As we pray and seek God's counsel, let's open our Bibles. Sometimes it's crystal clear where God's leading us. That way is sin. This way is not. Go this way. But where it's grayer than that, well, God grows and shapes our our ethics. He helps us with wisdom. He fosters that in us so we might know his will for our lives. It holds up a, a mirror for us to expose and explore our motivations in this decision or that. God's word is good. He uses it to guide us. So as we seek his counsel, let's have our Bibles open so that his voice can be the loudest one we listen to. As clever as we are, it's not clever making covenants or or big calls in our lives without counsel from God. That's a lesson from the Israelites in the first half of this chapter. The second half It's the Gibeonites teaching us. Uh, Here's the second point. The cunning plan pays off. Have I ever told you that I'm from Ireland? Did you know that? I am. I sound a little funny. Uh, When I was living in Dublin, one of my housemates was walking through uni when he found on the ground, just lying there, not one, but three tickets to Ireland playing New Zealand in the rugby. These were the hottest tickets in town, right? Rugby's our our national sport. The All Blacks are the best team in the world. But Ireland's on the up. We'd never beaten them ever. But this time we thought, well, maybe we have a chance. Everyone wanted to be at this game, right? But my mate Johnny does the right thing. He calls the ticket office and he says, look, I find these. What what do you want me to do with them? They say they'll cancel them and, and just throw them away. But he doesn't. Maybe he wants them as a, a souvenir. So he gets home, and my other housemate, Nick, he's like, we can't not try this. We cannot miss this opportunity. We have to go and see if those tickets will get us into the game. I am negative Ned. I said, there's no way. We're getting in. I'm not coming. And so game day comes. They want to go into town, chance their arm. I stay at home to watch it on the couch. Half an hour goes by, and I get this frantic call. Ben, we're in. <laughs> You've got to come. And so I jump on my bike. I race down to the stadium. They pass me the ticket over the turnstile. I try the ticket. It lets me in. And so we go to our seats and and we presume that the rightful ticket holders will be there and, and we'll get kicked out of the ground. But they're not. And so we settle in. And the atmosphere is electric. We watch the haka. The game starts. We keep looking over our shoulders, presuming someone's going to come and tap us on the shoulder to kick us out. But they don't. Now, eventually, somewhere in the first half, the the ticket holders do come, and they say, you're in our seats. But instead of leaving, we we kind of hopped our way around the stadium, watching from a walkway here or a a free seat there. I think I've got a a photo for the evidence. This was a great week for me going back through Facebook (laughs) down memory lane. There we go. You see what I mean about the hair? Anyway, and I want to tell you, that we were there for Ireland's epic first ever victory over the All Blacks. And we got down to the front and we, we got a jumper that one of the players threw. And we had it sight, but we didn't. They lost. They got hammered. But the point is that we were there in the flesh. And the moral of the story, crime pays off, right? That's the point. Maybe not. But in the Bible, 
we do get these episodes where people use cunning and, and guile and trickery and even kind of what seems like outright sin, and they get away with it. So it is with the Gibeonites. Their cunning plan pays off. Three days after they've made the covenant, the, the jig is up. Israel discover that they do actually live just down the road. And so Israel uh, musters an army and they march down, spoiling for a fight, but they cannot lay a finger on them. Have a look with me at verse 18, if your Bibles are still open. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. It's catch 22, right? On one hand, they want to honor God and his commandment to drive out these Hivites from the land. But on the other hand, they've made this covenant and they've sworn it by the Lord in his name. And so they have to keep it because to, to lay a finger on the Gibeonites would be to dishonor God. And they don't want to do that either. They're, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so they come up with this compromise. Let's curse these Gibeonites, say the leaders. They can live, but only as servants, as, as cutters of wood and drawers of water for the Israelites. And then Joshua, who's probably stung as well, he summons them and he says, why did you do it? Why did you deceive us? And this is fascinating because for the second time in the story, come with me to verse 24. It's the Gibeonites who are the one who grasp God's power and his authority over their lives. This is what they say. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we're in your hand, whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Why'd they do it? Fear was their motivation. And this echoes something we've seen already in Joshua. Do you remember Rahab from back in chapter two? The language she uses and the Gibeonites use, it's almost identical. It's the same knowledge of God's deeds. Like Rahab, they're living in a, a city, a foreign city marked out for destruction. And it's the same motivation. It's the fear of the Lord, which the Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. They don't have a, a personal relationship with God yet. But they know enough about Yahweh to know that he is safest when you're close to him. And that's what God honors here. Because even being servants on Yahweh's side is better than being dead and destroyed if we stand against him. And so Joshua spares them. The, the cunning plan pays off. And, and check this out, right? It, it gets better. Because look where they end up in verse 23. Joshua says, Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water. Wherefore, the house of my God. They're cursed, but they live and, and serve in God's house. In fact, at his altar, it's the heart of worship for God's people. That's where God gathers them into. And you know, there's more. 
right? The next chapter, chapter 10, they come under attack and it's God who steps in to destroy their enemies so Israel can win the day and honor their covenant with Gibeon. And there's even more. Later, much later in the book of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are named in a group that comes back from exile to rebuild the city. God prospers them. He preserves them. He protects them. And he gathers them in like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings to keep them safe. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he destroy them? It's because he takes their fear, this little grain of faith, and he welcomes them. Because God is a generous and gracious and inclusive God. Which takes us to our last point, number three. It all points to the perfect promise keeper. It points to God. And the amazing thing about God, Father, Son, and and Spirit is that his character endures. He's the same God then as today, as he will be tomorrow. His character doesn't change. He's still welcoming all people to himself. Sometimes I, I chat with people outside of church circles, and you hear kind of similar things in those conversations, especially with people who are kind of open to the idea of Christianity. Uh, They say something like, God wouldn't want me. I'm not good enough. You've no idea. You wouldn't believe the things I've done in the past or even the things I'm doing in the present. No, I need to sort my life out before I have anything to do with God. And there's others who say, I I don't know enough. No, I'm not from a a Christian family. I grew up in a a Buddhist or a a Hindu family, and I don't don't really know this God you talk about. It seems interesting, but, but I couldn't join because... That's not my family background. That's a a deal breaker, isn't it? But friend, if that's the little voice whispering in your head today, it's not from God. His message to you in Joshua 9 is loud and clear. You are welcome. The Gibeonites tricked their way in. And he said, you are welcome. He honors that little grain of faith. He's not checking passports. He's not setting competency tests on the door. He's not looking for clean lives. He's looking for real people. You might have heard that iconic promise from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, that's all of us, that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is a verse, a promise that rules everyone in. It it leaves the invitation open to anyone. It's an invitation for all of us. No particular nationality is barred. No religious background is barred. No sexual orientation. Nothing else you can imagine is barred from accepting that invitation to come and believe in Jesus and have life forever in his name. It's an invitation for all of us. And this isn't just theory in a book, right? Jesus lived this. When he called his closest friends, his disciples, the 12, to him, he chose a few fishermen. Rough hands, rough hearts, no education, nothing to say they had power or status or influence in their community. And yet Jesus drew them in to the closest relationship he had with anyone. 
He chose a zealot, a terrorist, committed to forcing the Roman occupiers out by violence. And he chose a tax collector, the complete opposite. Someone who's collaborating with those Romans to further his own greed and gain, skimming off the taxes. Jesus didn't look for prim and proper polished people whose lives look perfect on social media. He chose real people. He chose people like you and me. And he still is. So if you're here and all, all you know is that there's something compelling about this Jesus. Something that has pricked your interest. And, and all you want is just to know a little bit more. That is enough. You are welcome here. This is the place to find out more about this Jesus. If you came because you know there's something coming at you in your future and you can't do anything about it and you're scared and you didn't have anywhere else to go. So all it is is fear that's brought you here. You are welcome. Jesus has his arms open wide and he says, come, come and experience life with me. Come and I will take these burdens that you are struggling under. You don't have to sort yourself out before you get to know Jesus. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus. He's got the rest of your life to sort that out. Come, you are welcome here. Come and get to know this Jesus. Today might be a first step in that life-changing journey with him. Don't waste it. Come and pray with us. Come and pray with me at the end of the service. Come and pray with our prayer teams. They'd love to pray with you so that you might know just a little bit more today about this Jesus and what life with him is like. You are welcome. And look, maybe you're more like the Israelites than the Gibeonites today. You accepted this invitation for life with Jesus. You're part of his people, but, but that was a long time ago. And right now, things are just a struggle. Maybe that's where you're sitting this morning. You're wobbling in your commitment to him. You're doubting his goodness, or you're just kind of drifting away. Or maybe you're solid, but the person you're next to or someone in your head, they're drifting. These are words for them. These are words for you. You are welcome. Our, our hope is not based on our ability to hold on to Jesus and his promises. Our hope is based on his holding on to us. He is the perfect promise keeper. I'm going to invite the band up as we draw to a close and, and prepare to share communion together. Uh, Jesus made a covenant with us, friends. We know this. It's a, a promise, series of promises that he has done enough to take us into the heart of a relationship with the living God. He's done it all, and, and it's a covenant he signs in his own blood. He made it at the cross. So look, maybe you're wrapped up in a, a pattern of sin, and that little voice in your head is saying, you've gone too far this time. Jesus isn't going to have you back now. Not, not after this. Not what you've done now. Friend, he never let you go. Maybe you're thinking that you're tired of this Christian life. The zing is gone and you can't go on anymore. It's dry. It's moldy like that bread. And it's, it's lonely and it's just too hard. But friend, he has got you. Look at the cross. That is Jesus keeping his promises. And it cost him. It cost him his life. 
Father. That's how precious you and I are to him. He is the perfect promise keeper. That's what Joshua 9 points us to. We're going to share communion together as a church because it's a a meal that points us to Jesus. It reminds us of the promises he has made. Here's why. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read it for us. For I, Paul, received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, sharing communion is to share a meal that takes us back to Jesus and his death, his body and his blood broken, shed, given for us. It's a, a meal Christians share to remind ourselves to, to taste again of the covenant, the promises that he has made with us. And if today you're making that decision to follow Jesus for the first time, you are welcome at this table. This is a meal for Christians to come and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So let me pray and then we'll share together. Lord Jesus, you are the perfect promise keeper. You promised life for us and a a relationship with the living God and you paid the way, you paved the way with your blood and your body by your death on the cross. So Lord, wherever we're at today, if we're taking these steps for the first time, if we're long in the tooth as Christians and wobbling or not sure where we stand with you, would we taste of your goodness again today, Lord Jesus? You are good and your love endures forever. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au dot au